0: All right, Psalm 120. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with the warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshek, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when they when I speak, they are for war. This morning, we are beginning a uh, summer sermon series in the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent, uh, which is a collection of psalms within the book of Psalms. So it's Psalm 120 through 134. Those are the Psalms of Ascent. We're just going to look at a, the next Psalm of Ascent each Sunday. And you can always tell which one are the Psalms of Ascent, because they always start with a Song of Ascent. So, easy to identify. But what is a Psalm of Ascent? I mean, what, what, what is this collection? Well, maybe we could step back and say, what's a Psalm? What, what are the Psalms? The, the Psalms are poetry. They are the songs that were sung by the Israelites. This was the original hymn book of Israel uh, that the Israelites sang together in worship. And so so this is poetry. It's a different type of literature than we've been studying recently. Recently, we've been in 1 Corinthians. We've been studying Corinthians all year. Corinthians was a letter. And so it was a lot of arguments and propositions and supporting arguments. It was very logical and linear and rational. But, you know, when you come to psalms, when you come to poetry, if any of you studied poetry, you know that the logic of, of poetry and the reason of poetry is not found in a, in a logical argument. It's in the imagery. That poetry is imagery, and it's meant to connect with us at an effective, emotional level. So when you're reading poetry, you, you've, you've got to say, what do those images communicate? And, and let the images hit you like I said, in an emotional level. So it's a different kind of reading that you have to do. And yet in some ways, the Psalms are one of people's favorite part of the Bible because they do connect with us at that emotional level. There's something about the Psalms that that invite us to just read them as our own experience. You're, You're supposed to do that with the Psalms. So then, what then are the Psalms of Ascent? What's, the, what, what's the, the reason for this little collection within the broader collection of Psalms? And I guess in short you could say the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms that are associated with the, uh, the annual pilgrimages that the Israelites made to Jerusalem. So three times a year, the Israelites, right after the harvest, there was two spring harvests and then a fall harvest, the Israelites would take some of their produce and some of their goods and they would all go up to Jerusalem and they would offer sacrifices in Jerusalem. Uh, They would make a pilgrimage there. Uh, And so uh, this was just part of their life together. God commanded them to do this. And of course, if you're going to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. You go up on Mount Zion. You go up up to the temple of God. You go up to the house of David. So that's why it's a psalm of ascent. It's the people of Israel gathering together in the presence of God. So all of these psalms are either very directly or maybe loosely connected with this idea of God's people gathering together in God's city, Jerusalem, on a pilgrimage. And so you can see this is really applicable for us. Maybe you're like, I don't see how this is applicable for us. How are a bunch of 3,000-year-old poems written by farmers who are going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, how does that apply to life in the modern world? Well, because the Christian life is a pilgrimage. As Christians, we are on a journey to Jerusalem, to the true Jerusalem. We're, We're on a journey to the kingdom of God. Uh, The Bible tells us that as Christians, we are strangers and aliens in this world. The book of James calls Christians the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Uh, Christians are on a sojourn. Jesus said that even though we're in the world, we're not of the world. We don't belong here. And when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of of Jesus Christ, you're, you're now on this journey to the heavenly city and to the new creation. And and that's the weird thing about being a Christian. When you become a Christian, you suddenly feel out of place in this world. It's it's a very strange thing, Uh, but when you you come to faith in Jesus, when you repent of your sins and admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and when you put your hope in Jesus Christ for your salvation, not in your own efforts, not in your own religiosity, not your own spirituality, but you you push all your, your hope onto Christ and you say, Jesus is my Savior. When you become a Christian your whole perspective on this world changes and you no longer feel at home here. It's very odd. So you're still, you still have the same family, you still get together with people at Thanksgiving and Super Bowl parties and all that kind of stuff and you love your family and yet you kind of also feel now in some ways disconnected from your family and you feel this affinity to a new family called the local church, all these strange people who aren't related to you at all and are very different from you and yet you feel close to them because you've You've become part of this new citizenship. Uh, You you still love your country. You're still patriotic. Most of us here uh, grew up in America. Some of us grew up in other countries. And and probably we all feel loyal to the country of our birth. We feel a sense of national pride wherever it is we grew up. And, And we still have that. And yet, when you become a Christian, you now are a citizen of the kingdom of God that's coming. And you realize that this world and the kingdoms of this world will someday pass away and the kingdom of God will rule. And so you feel that tension. You know, yeah, I I love my country, but I belong to a heavenly country. You know, you still go to Fenway and sing Sweet Caroline. You still feel united to the other Bostonians, that, that feeling of, you know, Red Sox nation. But then I go to Dubai, like I did two weeks ago, and I worship in church with several hundred other Christians from over 60 different nations. And we sing, not Sweet Caroline, we sing, you know, crown him with many crowns. And I feel a more profound, eternal connection with those people than I ever could singing Sweet Caroline with 30,000 Red Sox fans. That's the weird thing that happens. You just belong to another world, even though you're still where you have always been. And so we find ourselves on this pilgrimage. But it's not just that we're going to a different place in a different world, but it's also that now I, I have a set of beliefs and values and things that, that I value that are so different from the world around me. Suddenly I look around at this world and I realize, you know what? This world doesn't love Jesus. This world doesn't love Jesus. You know, they maybe respect him, maybe honor him as a teacher or a prophet or, you know, a wise man or something. But they don't love him as Savior and Lord and Son of God and King of Kings. And so the, the thing that's at the core of my identity as a Christian, as my faith in Christ and my union with Christ, is now fundamentally at odds and is denied by what the world believes, regardless of what culture you're in. And so now, my heart is denied and opposed by the teaching and beliefs of the world. Jesus is Lord. No, he's not. And I live there. That's the hard thing of being a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't filling other hearts. I I hold this as God's Word, and I want to obey it. And other people are like, yeah, I don't know. That's a good book, I suppose. But I'm finding myself at odds. And so that's a... That's a grating tension. That's like metal on metal. It just grates on the soul. It's very difficult as as a Christian. So we find ourselves longing to make the pilgrimage to God's presence. Psalm 120, the first of the songs of ascent, captures that holy disquiet, that holy sense of abrasion as we rub up against a world that doesn't follow Christ. And, and that, that distress and the discomfort we feel being in this world. Psalm 120 just nails that really well. Look how it begins. Verse 1, I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. This is a guy who is not happy. He's in a hard, cold, difficult place Where he doesn't belong, where where he feels distress and stress from being there, that's where this this psalmist is, and he's calling out to God. He's he's you know, God, beat me up. (laughs) You know, get me out of here, evacuate immediately. Lord, save me. I'm I'm distressed. Answer me. And why is it that the psalmist is in so much distress where he is? Is it because of the climate? You know, is it because he really likes sunshine and he's in a cold place? Um, Is it that he likes cool and he's in a hot place? Is it the property taxes? Uh, is, is Is this a red state guy living in a blue state? Is this a blue state guy living in a red state? You know, what is it that's causing all of this distress? And what we see here is that it's not so much the climate or the circumstances, but it's in fact that he lives among people who don't worship the same God. He lives among people who don't follow God's ways. And over time, that is exhausting, it is abrasive, it it just grinds you down, living in community with people who reject God and his ways. It grates on the soul. And so in verses 2 to 7, the psalmist points out Two characteristics, kind of like two representative examples of why he's so distressed by the people who are around him. Why he's so distressed living in a world where people aren't following the God of the Bible. And and, and why it's so difficult. And so he, he probably could have listed a lot of reasons, but he picks two. He's like, let, let me tell you what what it's like here. And he gives us two representative examples. The first one is this. The first reason he's in distress is because the people among whom he lives, are liars. They're liars. Look at verse 2. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Everyone around me just lies all the time. They're twisting the truth. They're distorting the truth. They tell white lies. They smile to your face and lie straight to your face. They're spinning things. And you never know what's true anymore. Of course, this grates on the soul of a true believer because the God we worship, Jesus, he is the truth. He is truth. God is truth. Everything God speaks is true. His word is true. And it's not just kind of like, well, that's God's truth and then that's your truth and we each have our own truth. I mean, God's truth is the truth. The truth in an absolute sense. Uh, God's word is truth. God wants us to be a people who tell the truth to each other. One of the Ten Commandments, you know, don't bear false testimony against your neighbor. Or think about uh, in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came to deceive Adam and Eve. He, he came telling lies. There's a reason why the devil is called the father of lies. God is truth and light, and the devil is lies and darkness. Uh, and, and so in, in some ways really lying is one of those I kinda of called it a sin behind the sin. So there's all kinds of sins that we struggle with or that people can commit. And yet there's sins that are sometimes behind them, like pride that seems to fuel other sins. I feel like lying is one of those. When when we lie, it just gives rise to other sins and other problems. That's one of the reasons why all of you here who are parents try to keep teach your kids not to lie. It's it takes a lot of effort. You know, it's like you don't want to lie, kids. So kids do something wrong. It's obvious they did it. You're a parent. Kids don't know how you know that, but you just know they did it. And so you're like, look, I know you did it. Just, you just got to tell me, okay? I didn't do it. You're like, I know you did it. It's okay. Just admit it, and we'll work through it. I, if you did something wrong, we can work through it. You know, there may be some consequence. It won't be so bad. But if you're lying to me, then it'll be really bad. So this is the chance to tell the truth. You know, why do parents come down so hard on lying? It's because you don't want your kid to be a liar. People who are liars, they, they're, they, they just undercut and ruin their whole lives. You can't have a relationship with a liar. You, you know, you're going to have relationships with people. You have a relationship with me. At some point, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to sin against you. I'm going to hurt you. It's just a matter of time. In fact, it'll probably happen sooner rather than later. But then if you point it out to me, and you're like, you know, Jeremy, when you said that, that was really that was super inconsiderate, that was really hurtful, or when you did that, that really was this or that, you know, then I can be like, you're right. I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? And we can be reconciled. But if I'm a liar, you never know if even the apology I'm giving you is true. Lying is just like acid. It, it, It corrodes the foundations of the possibility of relationship together. And so here's the psalmist. He's surrounded by this. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. I think we can relate to this to a certain degree. Truth is a a rare commodity in our own culture. Every time we we look at marketing, it seems, we're we're looking at airbrushed models or we're looking at computer-enhanced images. And, And, you know, are we really seeing what's real? We are a very marketed generation, and so there's, there's just a lot of savvy that we have in, in kind of, you know, seeing through the marketing. It's not just buy a truck. You're not being invited to buy a truck. You're invited to buy freedom and manliness, you know. Wait a minute. You know, you, you're not just buying uh, a smartphone. You're buying coolness, trendiness, and connectivity to the world, and so, so all of these products have these values associated with them and, and we feel the slipperiness of marketing and, and, we, and we become used to it. And so we don't believe things when they're told to us. So we wonder when someone's telling us something, what do they really want? What's the real twist here? We know there's something real. There's some other going on or any service. I just got to figure it out, what the real truth is. We have high skepticism these days, Sadly. Uh, about the truth-telling capacity of our politicians and leaders. We, we doubt them. We, we worry that everything they're saying is spin, that's trying to position an issue in order to benefit them or their, their purposes. Um, we, we just wonder, is anyone telling the truth? And what it does is, is when you're in a culture where truth is a rare commodity, is it just makes you skeptical and cynical. So I think it's easy to be cynical. It feels like a lot of us are cynical. We're doubtful, we're skeptical, we're like, yeah, really? And, um, and, and it could turn you into a cynical, skeptical, curmudgeon Christian who's always, eh, you know, all right, kind of a thing. And I'm still trying to find those as in the uh, lists of the gifts of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't really see that as the fruit of the Spirit. You know, where's the love and the joy and the peace? Ah, I got skepticism and curmudgeoniness. How about that? And so it's, it's easy to fall into this. When you're in a culture where truth is hard to come by, it makes you really skeptical and negative. And so here's this, this guy, Lord, save me from lying lips. I need out of here. This is really hard, being a Christian, following the God of truth in a world that has no respect for the truth. And then in verses 3 and 4, he gets a little, little glimpse of the future. This is probably one of the more positive parts of the psalm. In, in verses 3 and 4, it's, it's like the, uh, the psalmist climbs up above the, the clouds and, and all of the smog, and he gets a, a glimpse into the future. He gets this momentary view of what will happen down the road to liars. So, so he says, okay, this is what's going to happen, liars. Look at verses 3 and 4. What will he do to you, and what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals, Of the broom tree. So, down the road in the future, God is going to judge liars and lying. God's going to bring it to account. This is what God's going to do to you. Down in the future, God's going to punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, the burning coals of a broom tree. What in the world's a broom tree? Uh, Well, I actually don't know. But, according to the books I read, uh, it's a a kind of desert plant that. That has bark and wood that burns really hot and makes for great coals, but the, again, this is poetry. What's the image? The image is judgment. God's anger and judgment is often represented through the imagery of burning things and fire. Our God is a consuming fire. The Bible tells us, and so here's here's this image. Basically, God's going to judge. You're not going to get away with the lies forever there's coming a day when every lie will be exposed for what it is. On the day of judgment, all of the lies and all of the sneakiness and all of the deceptions will be brought into the light and it will be, at that point, unspinnable. You know, that's truly when all the spin will stop because it will be God exposing the truth and it won't just be his opinion, it will be truth and the world will be silent before god there's a great day of judgment coming a great day when truth will descend like like a thunderstorm upon the world of truth and god's word will have the final word and the psalmist sees that day coming and he says oh god is going to take care of all the lying it's a warning, it's a, it's a strong passage that shows us what God is going to do. That his kingdom will come. This world that grinds in our souls, that's the good news. It's not going to last forever. But then in verse 5, he succumbs again to the, the cloud and the fog. Verse 5, woe to me. So he gives a little glimpse of the future. Yes, God is going to take care of this. Oh, but that's a long way off and he sinks back down. Like Peter, sinking beneath the waves, he loses faith. He, he succumbs to the, the fear of it again, and he, he's now suffering again. He says, woe to me. Uh, that's that wonderful Hebrew word, oy. Oy, oy. It's, it's the cry of, of hopelessness and despair and sorrow and misery. It's, it's the word you would yell out at a funeral when you were grieving in that culture. Oi. oy. So now he looks at where he is. So yeah, yeah, God is going to set it all straight someday. But today, I'm still in a bad place. I'm distressed. Because number one, the world around me is full of lies. And number two, here's the second reason he's distressed, is that the people around him hate peace. They hate peace. They're, they're full of conflict and and uh, bitterness, and warfare against each other. Again, look at verses 5 to 7. He says, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I'm a man of peace. I'm a man of shalom. But when I speak, they are for war. They're not, they hate shalom. They hate peace. So not only are, are they liars, but they're in conflict, and of course, those two go together, because once you start lying, I mean, conflict and distrust and disunity is sure to follow. And he says, oh, I can't take it. What's this thing in verse 5 about Meshech and Kedar? Where are those? Well, I didn't know that either, so I had to look it up. But uh, there, there are two places. Meshech is north of Israel, so think of here's Israel, kind of roughly. Here's the Mediterranean Sea, here's Turkey, and down here's Saudi Arabia... Uh, is what we call it today. So if this is Israel, Meshech was up in the northern part of Turkey and Qadar was down in Saudi Arabia, in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. So Meshech uh, appears to be some people, some city, some region at that time. And usually when it's mentioned in the Old Testament, the people of Meshech are described as kind of like barbarians. They're violent, they're warlike, they hate peace. They're this bad, scary people. It's kind of like probably how the, Rome, the Romans viewed the barbarians from the north. You know, the Goths and the Visigoths and the Vandals and all those bad tribes up there. And so, you know, oh, the people of Meshech, they're, they're so evil. In fact, um, one of the interesting places where you find a reference to Meshech in the Old Testament, you don't have to turn there, but it's in the prophet Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, and if you're, if you're familiar with... I'm sure you're probably all familiar with Ezekiel 38 and 39. But it's a, it's a prophecy. It's a weird prophecy. It's kind of a prophecy about the end times and a final battle that will happen when this antichrist figure, kind of like figure, named Gog, G-O-G. Isn't that a cool name? That's, that's like a, a good name for an orc from Lord of the Rings. Gog. Uh, Gog is going to come down and declare war against God's people. So it's, a, it's kind of a prophecy and a vision of a final assault by an antichrist kind of figure against God's people. Interestingly, it gets picked up in the book of Revelation uh, to describe the final battle there. Anyway, um, one of the titles for Gog is that he is the prince of Meshech. So that's the kind of association you get. Meshek is warlike, violent, pugilistic, domineering, imperialistic, Antichrist kind of people coming down from the north, so you can see how the psalmist feels when he says, "I dwell in Meshek." He didn't literally dwell in Meshek, but he's like, "That's where I live." You know, it's, it's like when it, you know when people say, ah, it's, "It's like I live in Sodom and Gomorrah." You know, it's it's a very negative assessment of the culture in which he lived. The other place he says he lives is among the tents of Kedar. Kedar was a place down in the Arabian Peninsula. It was, uh, the, the, those people were nomadic from what we know. They lived in tents. Uh, and, and there's not as much said about the people of Kedar but one of the things the Bible says about them a couple times is that they were mighty warriors and mighty archers. So again, warlike, hostile people. So the psalmist says, I live in Meshech. I live in Qadar, I live among people who just want to fight all the time. You know, I, they, I live among them. They hate peace, verse 6. They're for war. I'm for peace. I'm for getting along. They're for fighting it out. I'm, I'm for understanding. They're for overcoming and domineering. I'm, I'm for us loving each other. They're filled with hatred and, and conflict. I thought, boy, we can relate to that one too, can't we? As we still live in a, a war-filled, conflict-filled world. Even as we gather in peace and safety this morning, we know there are, people in Syria today who are dying because of war. We know there are people in Ukraine uh, where there's conflict between Ukraine and separatists within Ukraine and looming behind this little country. We see Russia and we see the European Union and America and, and both sort of pushing their agendas down in through this country. Thus has it ever been. That's how it is in a sinful and broken world. Or or even looking in at politics, Uh, you know, again, maybe I'm too skeptical and cynical, but I just look at politics and I think, do you think there's anything at all that would bring both parties together to work together for a common good? Like, even if there's something that you think would be a common good, it's almost like instead of saying, well, let's just do that for the common good, both parties are thinking, I wonder how we can use that to advance our agenda so that we win in the next election. It's like, just... Do something for the American people. Maybe I'm too cynical. Maybe I'm too skeptical. Feel free to rebuke me after the service. But it's not just the nations. It's not just politics. It's easy to point fingers at the big headline stuff. You know, the reality is that we live in a lot of conflict. Many of us are going to work tomorrow. We're going to be getting, on a, getting in our cars or getting on a commuter rail or taking the boat in to Rose Wharf. Uh, some of us will be getting on a school bus tomorrow, going to school. And we're heading into a, a, sort of a high level of conflict. That there is a burner that's been simmering there all weekend. And and you think about tomorrow morning when you have to get in your car and you're already saying, Oi! <laughs> oh, whoa. I work in Meshech. I go to school in Kadar. Like, all oh, the all oh, the kids are so nasty to each other and they're always slandering each other and oh there's just so much drama and acrimony and it wears on the soul. Some of us go home. We have that in our homes. You know conflict conflict just has a way of sapping the strength out of you. You know, give give me hard work, long hours. I can take it as long as I'm working for something productive. That's exciting. But but fill it with conflict and tension, and I just feel myself being drained dry by that. And so the psalmist, it's like, God, save me. I'm in distress. I want to be in Jerusalem. I want to be with you, but instead, look where I'm at. I'm surrounded by liars, and I'm surrounded by uh, violent, meshech, kedar-type people who hate peace. Oh, save me. Deliver me. And so he cries out in his distress. Can you relate? So what should we do? What do we do as Christians finding ourselves in this position? Because we too find ourselves as pilgrims. We do find ourselves, not, we're not like the Israelites when they went in and conquered the land of Israel. We're more like Abraham when he was sort of sojourning in Israel and there were other forces and kingdoms and religions. And we're trying to live among them and be peaceable. And yet we don't belong to this world. And so, you know, what should we do? What should our response be? And uh, sometimes our response is, let well, just run away. You know, I've, I've joked before, you know, maybe we should just go, uh, f- you know, do a little commune up in Maine or something. I mean, sometimes Christians do that. It's just, well, maybe not Maine. It's so cold up there. Oh. Bermuda? Huh. Um, well, actually, I had a new idea this week. Uh, wh- what if we sold everything, you know, churches, everything, we sold all of our possessions and we bought a cruise ship and it would be like the USS, you know, kingdom of God. And, we, and you know, we, all, all the programming in the ship would be clean. There wouldn't be any smut and filth. And there would be, you know, great schools for our kids. where It would be, you know, talked about God all the time. And there would be church services and lots of food. And we could just kind of be in a little Christian bubble on a cruise ship. Maybe occasionally sail into a port. And we all go off and evangelize everybody. Then we get back on our ship so it's not to be infected by the world. You know, just little mission trips to Kadar, back on. And we sail around, like, you know, wouldn't that that be great? Maybe that's how we escape this world, and, and maybe that's how we endure life in this world, while we wait for the kingdom of God. Of course, there's one little problem with that. We take the world with us, wherever we go. Didn't our Puritan forefathers find that when they tried to establish the Massachusetts Bay Colony as a city on a hill? And yet, we bring the world with us. I love the Puritans, but you can't make a city on a hill because even as Christians, even as people who've been forgiven of our sins, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who are being transformed into the image of Christ, the reality is we still haven't arrived yet even in our own walk with the Lord. And so that means that even as Christians who are well-intentioned, we still bring lies and dishonesty with us. We still wrestle with our own tendencies to fight and be in conflict. I mean, you know, have you ever heard of a church being in conflict? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, it happens all the time. Because even people who love Jesus, who've been forgiven and have the Holy Spirit, we still are trying, we're on this internal pilgrimage to, sh- to be done with sin and to grow in holiness. And so individually, as churches, we need to grow in holiness. So even if we went on the cruise ship, it would just be a problem eventually because the world is still with us in our hearts, even as we're trying to follow Christ And so I wonder, too, if if we might even read this psalm not only as a cry of distress and escape from this world and a longing for the heavenly kingdom that's coming, but also even a cry for God to deliver us from the sin that persists in our own hearts. You know, Lord, I've lived long. See that verse 6? Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. So long, in fact, that I'm, I'm like them to a degree. I need you to deliver me from me. You know, I not only need deliverance from all the when I turn on the TV and I just see the filth that's on there sometimes, not only do I need deliverance from that, I also need deliverance from what I see when I look in the mirror and I see my own heart and I see who I can be. And I was like, Lord, I need you to keep saving me from that. And Lord, we need you to keep helping our church to keep growing. So that we as a body speak the truth to each other. You know, the, the Christian life is not just a solo endeavor. Christians are called to be members of local churches. So then we get together in our local church. And we're supposed to shine the light of Jesus. But the problem is we get in our local church and we don't know how to tell the truth to each other. That's something you have to grow in, how to speak the truth in love. And, and we get together in a local church and, and eventually it's going to happen. Once you start getting involved in the church, we start stepping on each other's toes and then the Meshech comes out. Like, what? How dare you? And, you know, and everyone's justified, and, and everyone starts claiming that God is on their side, and it becomes this holy war inside the church as each side feels like they're fighting for what's right and what's true. And so even in the church, we, we need to keep growing in what it means to live in peace and unity and showing love to each other. I mean, that's what we've been studying Corinthians all year, right, people? Learning how to live out the gospel in community with each other. If you have any questions on that, just go back and listen to the First Corinthians sermon series this week. So we need God's help. We cry out, even as Christians, save us from this world and save us from the way the world still infects our own souls. Lord, draw us closer to yourself. We need to be like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress or Christian, rather, is the name. You guys know Pilgrim's Progress? Uh, written by John Bunyan, famous Puritan. He spent a lot of time in jail, and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in jail. And uh, it's an allegory. It's an allegory. It's about the journey from the city of destruction to the the, uh, the eternal kingdom of God. And this person in the story named Christian, he represents a Christian. It's not a tough allegory. and And he's... He's trying to get to heaven. And so it it describes just kind of what it's like living the Christian life as a pilgrim in this world. People still read it today. Even the thing is hundreds of years old because it so nails the, the different experiences that we have in this pilgrimage and the different spiritual trials that we have. But when he starts the journey, when Christian starts the journey, he's living in the city of destruction. He doesn't know he's in the city of destruction. Then he starts reading the Bible, and he realizes God is going to judge the world. And he realizes, I'm in trouble. I've got to get away from the city of destruction. And so he starts telling all his friends and neighbors about how bothered he is and how God is going to judge the world and how they need to repent of their sins. And all his friends and neighbors are like, What? You know, you're crazy. And they're trying to talk him down off the religious ledge and they think he's joined a cult or whatever. They, they think he's lost it spiritually, that he just needs to calm down and not be so intense. He's like, No, 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 no. God's going to judge the world. We're going to stand accountable for God. We need to be saved. And so finally his family comes out in the story and they're trying to just calm him down and just get him in the house and stop making such a scene. And, and Pilgrim, or rather Christian, I can call him Pilgrim, Christian, he stuffs his fingers in his ears and he runs away shouting at the top of his lungs, life, life, eternal life. You know, Give me life. Get me out of the city of death and destruction. I need to find eternal life. And so we need that urgency in our Christian life. Lord, I can't sit passively and comfortably in the world and just buddy up to it. Lord, I need to be following you because otherwise it's going to suck me in. And so Psalm 120 is the heart cry of the person in distress in this world, distress at the effects of the world who's longing for God to do something. You can't run away from it. But God can save us. And that's the point. Lord, I call to you in my distress, verse 1. Verse 2, save me, O Lord. So the Christian life is one of, of fleeing the world, not by going on a cruise ship, but fleeing the world, truly being in the world, but not of the world. Let me ask you this, just application question. Where are you, and where am I, still kind of of the world? You know, we're in the world. We, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. You know, where, where would a friend look at your life and say, well, actually, on that thing right there, you're still kind of of the world, dude. I, I know you'd like to think you're not of the world, but that's pretty of right there. A lot of of. That looks like the world. That doesn't look like someone who's a pilgrim. That looks like someone who's a settler and who owns property. You, you don't look like an expatriate. You look like a native. You should look like an expatriate. Don't be of the world. What, what is that for you? What, what, what area of your life, if God were to put his finger on it and, and to call you out to eternal life, what, where would he put his finger in your life? Where do we need to keep growing as Christians. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you, you're you kind of investigating Christianity, a friend brought you, we're really, really glad that you're here. Um, and I would just say to you too, the same thing. You need to flee to eternal life. Because you've got to know something. This world is done for. It's just a matter of time. The judgment day is coming. Verses 3 and 4. That, that day of accountability is fast approaching. And if, if this world is your home and this is all you have and this is where your hope is and it's not in Jesus Christ, you're on the wrong side of the judgment. And when God comes, you're in big trouble. You're going to be judged by God. You need salvation. You need to be saved from that. You need to be saved from your lying lips and, and your hatred and all the other sins that we all have. You need a savior too. In the amazing news of the Bible, the amazing news of the gospel is that God has provided a Savior named Jesus. Think about Jesus. Jesus, think about it this way. When Jesus came into the world, he made the reverse pilgrimage. We'd all love to pilgr- be pilgrims to get to God. Jesus went the opposite direction. He was with God. He was in the place of eternal joy and glory. There was no distress for him but he took on human flesh, and God the Son became a human being and dwelt among us. He went backwards to us rather than hoping that we would somehow get to him. He came backward to us, and he lived in the sinful and broken world. I was thinking about Jesus when uh, the night before he went to be crucified, he was on trial, and they surrounded him with liars. And all these false witnesses were trying to make some lies stick to him, and none of them stuck. So the lies didn't work. So then they resorted to violence. They began to strike him and to to punch him and hurt him physically. Jesus was surrounded by liars. Jesus was in the heart of Meshech as this anti-Christ violence came against Christ. And the resistance was there. And he did it all the way. He went all the way to the cross so that he might bear our sins. On the cross, Jesus was... Carrying my guilt and my shame and my sin, so that I could be forgiven. So that God has provided salvation by coming on a reverse pilgrimage to absorb my my sin and my judgment that I deserve. So I would just encourage you too, if you don't know Christ, to call. Look at verse one. Call on the Lord in your distress. Call on Him. Seek Him. With the confidence that, verse 1, he answers. God answers those who call on him. Or as it says in the New Testament, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Where is your hope? Are you a settler in this world thinking this is all there is? Yeah, just try to be a good person. Do the best you can. No, it's going to get overthrown. You need Christ. You need the Savior. And everyone who calls on him will be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are that Savior. We we love you, Jesus, because you made the reverse pilgrimage to save us. Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you came to rescue liars and violent people and stubborn people and prideful people and selfish, materialistic people and angry people. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to save us, that you died on the cross for us. And so, Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, that they would come to see that uh, they need a Savior. That there is a flood coming and they need to get into the ark. That there is a, a, a firestorm coming and they need to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, that there is a judgment day coming and they need to lay hold of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you drive these things home to their hearts? And God, I pray for those of us who are clinging to you that we really would keep pressing on to eternal life. That. Lord Jesus, you would give us strength as we continue to endure life in a world that does not love you. And that Jesus, you would help us as Christians to to leave sin behind. And you would pinpoint those areas in our life where we need to grow. Help us to grow, Lord. I pray that for myself especially. I just want to keep growing closer to you. Help our church as a whole congregation to look more and more like Jesus in the way we treat each other and the way we relate to each other. Lord, help us to love each other. And so, Lord, be with us, we pray. We call upon you. Lord, save us. We call upon you in our distress. In Jesus' name, amen.